0: Hey, everyone. It's good to see you this morning. My name's Tony. If we haven't had the, the privilege of meeting, I happen to be on pastoral staff here. It's good to be with you this Labor Day weekend. For those of us who are still in the area, not gallivanting all over the world, it's good to be here with you uh, on a Sunday morning. Now, if you are a kid and want to hang out with other kids, Miss Belinda is back over there. Feel free to enjoy the company of other little people. And if you are an adult and you're here with me, we're uh, we started in January, basically going through a relatively high level journey through the Old Testament. We made it through the Torah uh, a few weeks ago, and now we're um, they're they're making it. There you go. Um, they were just captivated by that intro. They're like, "Why would I ever leave this?" You know. Um, and now we're, uh, we're actually starting the book of Joshua, so we've been in it a couple weeks. Last week we were talking about Jericho, and we primarily talked about Aaron's version of his Veggie Tales rememberings of cucumbers and peas going around uh, Jericho. This week we're at sort of the second, the second level uh, of Israel's entrance into the Promised Land. And they approach this town called Ai, and the reason they go there Uh, Is because it's sort of a stronghold they need to defeat next in order to make it into the promised land. Now, this is a really important story uh, in the book of Joshua, but also in the scriptures as a whole, because it actually serves as a warning to Israel going forward about the seriousness of the mission that they're on. Now, it begins in chapter 7 of the book of Joshua, so if you want to read in your Bibles, you can, otherwise, it'll be projected up here. So in uh, chapter 7 begins, much like their approach to Jericho, they send out some spies to check things out, and this is how it reads. Joshua 7, verses 2 and 3. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth Aven, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they, the people of Ai, are few. All right. so big picture, Joshua sends some spies out to check things out. What's interesting though, is that when they report back, they don't mention anything about God or the promise that God would give them the promised land. Now, if you've been with us on this journey, you'll know this is significant. In, no, in Numbers, I almost said November, in Numbers 13 and 14, right? the spies are sent out to land this is the first generation to make it to the promised land they send out spies everyone's excited the spies come back they report back and up to this point every single time the promised land has been mentioned it has been mentioned as a gift of god's promise the first time it's disconnected from god's promise is numbers 13 and 14 what happens right after that the people freak out and they say we're going to go back to egypt they spend the next generation in the wilderness this time, they send some spies out. The spies come back, and the same thing happens. They start focusing on all their military strategies. We don't need to bring all these people, we got this. Which is a little ironic, given one, the defeat of Jericho involved God telling them to play musical instruments and walk around to town, brilliant military strategy. Right? they don't come back to Joshua and say, "Hey." So what weird plan does God have for us this time? They focus on their judgment rather than rely on God's direction and wisdom. I also think it's important to realize that, like none of these Israelites have military training. They're the second, basically the descendants of freed slaves in Egypt. These aren't war strategists. And that they come to the conclusion, hey, I, pff, compared to Jericho, this is nothing. Let's just send two to three companies, two to three thousand people, and we got this. Let's not tire everyone out, right? They say we don't want everyone to toil. Give them a day off. You know, we all need some rest. So while in Numbers 13 and 14, right, the, that first generation trying to enter the Promised Land lacked faith because they didn't believe they were strong enough. Now. As they're trying to enter the promised land, they lack faith because they believe they are so strong, they don't need to even include God. In the process, they're like, we got this. They trust in their own strength rather than God's provision. This is what happens. So about 3,000 men went up from there from the people, and they fled before the men of I. And the men of I killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as uh, Shebarim and struck them at the descent and the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Right, so the spies, they come up with this plan independent of God's direction. The battle ends in defeat, and the contrast with Jericho is really staggering. Jericho is 100% God's plan, it ends in victory. Here, this is 100% human plan, it ends in defeat. And this expression, right, their hearts melted, is the exact same language that Rahab used to describe how she felt when she heard about God parting the Red Sea and God defeating Pharaoh, right? She's like, oh, my heart melted within me. Now, it applies to Israel as they face a small city like I, right? Without God's help, even small obstacles become overwhelming. In response, the text says, Then Joshua, right, tore his clothes and fell on the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. And he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us. Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say? When Israel has turned their backs before their enemies, for the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? I want to highlight three things here. First is their response to this defeat, right? They repent. This is symbolized culturally in clothes tearing. I give you permission not to tear your clothes today. Uh, and also keep the dust you brought in this morning outside. But anyway, they fall on their face, they repent, they put dust on their heads, right? They recognize something is off, right? And this loss isn't just a loss, but it's also a sign that God's favor isn't with them. Also want to emphasize, right, Joshua cries out to God, right? He leans into God's promise to give the land and is stunned, right? God, why haven't you given us victory, God, you made walls fall down while we marched around and played musical instruments. Why not now? Right, they think they've been obedient. So they're super confused. He wants to know why this hasn't happened. Why didn't they have just immediate victory? And third, I just want to emphasize at the end, right, Joshua's focus on God's honor or his name. Right, how the Canaanites are going to speak about him. Right, he's concerned certainly about himself and their people, but he's also concerned about how God is going to be viewed through this defeat. Now, I'm not sure when Joshua, you know, fell on the ground on his knees what he thought God was going to say. You know, maybe maybe he had some idea, maybe he's just desperate. I'm pretty confident He does not anticipate what God actually does say. This is what he says. This is what God says to Joshua in the midst of his repentance. Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up. Consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus says the Lord God of Israel. There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. Yep. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe of the Lord takes by lot, shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near by, near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire. And he all he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Okay. First the consequence the defeated eye isn't simply that the spies came up with their own plan but also that Israel has sinned and this sin has affected the communal mission of God right so God identified before they went into Jericho certain objects they called devoted things this included gold silver bronze and iron that when the warriors went into Jericho they weren't supposed to touch that was meant to be given to God as like Kind of like a, an act of devotion. God, these are yours. They're not supposed to take it for themselves. They're not supposed to leverage it for their advantage. Right? Imagine it, though. You're a warrior. You're in a city. You have now this full city, and there's like trinkets and gold and stuff. And you think, well, who's going to use this gold anyway? This little gold bar could do a ton for my family, for me. You know, this could make a big difference. Surely no one's going to notice, right? This is just a personal choice. Might not be the right one, but it's not going to affect anyone else, right? Second, while repentance is good, surely sort of quote-unquote repenting with gold or silver or whatever devoted thing is hidden in your tent, you know, while you're putting dust on your head and saying, God, you know, we repent before you with that hidden thing, stolen thing, in your tent, under your pillow, is clearly not repentance, right? It's an act, a performance, a charade, which clearly doesn't bring God pleasure. And yet, this is what is happening at this moment. And third, as a result, right, God tells them, you guys need to find these objects that have been stolen and hidden and now return them back. You need to identify who did it, bring them forward, and get those objects back. He tells them to divide by clan or tribe, clan, household, and individual, which are sort of like the basic building blocks of Israelite society. So Joshua now knows what he needs to do. He rises the next morning. He does as God instructed. He separates the tribes, right, and the lot lands on Judah, the clans, and it's the Zarahites, the households, and it's Zabdi, and the person within the household, and it's this, this guy named Achan. And Joshua says to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel. Give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan replies, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. This is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak of shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and I took them. And see, they're hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Now, before we get into Achan's reply, I want to set the stage a little bit. First, in Joshua, this theme of hiding now is sort of coming forth. Remember, Joshua 1 and 2, Rahab hides spies. The Canaanite hides spies, and she is counted faithful. Now, the Israelite, hides gold and other treasure, and he is unfaithful, right? So faithfulness isn't dependent on ethnicity. Two, I want to riff back to Genesis 3. This is going to be really important. Genesis 3, 6, right? You have Adam and Eve. You have this serpent. Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. And gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate, right? This is central to the fall narrative in Genesis. Now, having listened to the serpent, watch the progression. Eve sees. What does she see? She sees that the fruit is tove. It's good. So what does she do? She takes it. She thinks, "Ah, this is going to make me wise." She decides, right? She sees. That which is good apart from God's provision. She sees and then she takes. See the good take. Now back to Achan. What happens? He sees a beautiful coat. Beautiful is the same word, tove. He sees the tove and then he takes. The coat, the silver, and the gold, just like Eve. Achan reenacts the fall for this new generation of Hebrews as they enter the promised land. Right? God has been super clear. Do not take it certain things. Right, Do not take the fruit of that tree. Do not take these certain items. Right? God gave Adam and Eve all the trees in the garden to eat from. Right? He's giving Israel all the promised land. He asked for some very specific things. Don't eat one tree. Don't take certain things from Jericho. And yet, both Adam and Eve and Achan, from a posture of lack, from a posture of providing for themselves, independent of God, decide what is good and go their own way. And just like in the garden, their actions are not without consequence. Right? He finds, they find these hidden things in the tent. They bring them out for everyone to see. And then the text says, all Israel stoned him with stones. Achan dies for his theft, and yet the sin doesn't just affect him. It affects his family. It affects the entire nation as they are defeated at Ai. Israel loses the battle at Ai in large part because Achan sees the good apart from God and takes it. Now, I think some of us read this story and we're like, dude, that's a little intense. You know, if you're visiting for the first day, you're like, do they talk about this every Sunday? Uh, No, but we do talk about repentance a fair amount because it's central to what does it mean to practice the way of Jesus. And some of us might be thinking, well, this is why I don't read the Old Testament, right? There's stories like this. And I want to challenge this. Fast forward to Acts 5. The church is picking up momentum. It's exciting. All these people are coming in to the church. They're converting from their ways to God's ways, right? They're not seeing the good apart from God. They're saying, God, you are the source of good. I'm going to align with you. It's super exciting. This man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira, they sell a piece of property and they lay it at the apostles' feet. They say, this is a gift for you and the church and God's kingdom. But instead of telling the apostles they kept some of the money back from the sale for themselves, they claim that the entire proceeds of the gift they've given and laid at the apostles' feet. And Peter says to Ananias, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. After Peter finishes saying this, Ananias dies. And then his wife walks in. She repeats the same lie. What happens to her? She dies. what we see in both these stories, in Acts 5 and Joshua 7, is that God's people are at a key transition moment, right? They're both after key and exciting victories, right? In Joshua, they just defeated Jericho. In Acts, the church is growing. It's exciting, right? People are coming to know Jesus. Yes! And it's right at this moment after the victory that someone tries to do something deceitful, which God takes super seriously. And both of these stories function to remind us as God's people that the mission we are on is wonderful, but it is also really, really serious. God reminds His people at those key moments that He cares about His holiness. He cares about our holiness and righteousness, what we covet, what we do with our money, and what we do with our lives. Joshua 7, Acts 5. Now, you might be wondering, okay, so what does this have to do with us, right? I'm not attacking a city. There is not a beautiful coat that I want to see and take, you know, for myself. I do want to say, I just want to say, I think these are the kind of stories we want to avoid often in church. They make us feel uncomfortable. They make us wonder, like, am I okay? I'm certainly not perfect. You know, what do I do with that? Right? The truth is we all carry sin and brokenness into the church. None of us are perfect. So these stories, I think, make us very uncomfortable. Because we're like, I don't want to, like, be stoned. <laughs> I don't want to feel, I don't want to be judged. I don't want to fall over dead. That would suck. Right? So what do we do as imperfect, broken creatures that we are when we read stories like this? Well, as I've sort of thought about and prayed about this story in Joshua 7, but also in Acts 5, I really don't think it's coincidental that we as a church are talking about this story at this moment in our church's life. During the first year of our church plant, right before we had our public launch, right? So the public launch is when you're like, we did stuff among ourselves, but before we like made the website public and we're like, hey, we're here, come and join us. God had us teach through Acts 5, the story of Ananias and Sapphira, right? Because the launch wasn't just about extending the kingdom in the world, inviting everyone in, but it was also about aligning our heart with God's heart as we did so, right? And the story of Ananias and Sapphira then became really important for us because Ananias and Sapphira, they kind of pretend like they're all in. Here you go, apostles. Have all of my land. I'm all in. They tried to appear like they were more in than they actually were. And I think God, through that text, as a just growing church plant, was telling us to check our heart's alignment with the fathers. I think He was telling us to check our unity as a body. Are we really in this together? you know, before God would bring people in. And we'd say to him, you know, yeah, you can experience the kingdom of God here. I think God wanted us to look at the example of Ananias and Sapphira and say, hey, make sure your heart is aligned with God at this key transition moment. I don't think it's coincidental that God's bringing us back to kind of an Ananias and Sapphira-like story as we begin this kind of new season. Enter this significant transition after hopefully the worst of the pandemic is behind us. And I think God is challenging us as we lean into this season to look at our lives and not just go through the motions of doing church. I think He's challenging us to take the example of Achan, right, who ripped his clothes and put dirt on his hair, All the while, he had a hidden sin in his tent. He went through the motions of the religious stuff without actually addressing what was hidden in his life. I guess I just wonder this morning, what's buried in your heart, in your mind, in your house, on your computer, in your life that is not confessed? that's hidden. Because the thing is, what the scriptures tell us is that all personal sin affects the community. Adam and Eve, their sin has consequences for the community. Achan, their sin has consequences in the community. Now in the New Testament and in the church, it's clear that when we have hidden sin in our lives, right? We're called to actually confess it. Right? Not just, you know, acknowledge like, oh, I, you know, I need to repent, but then not actually confess it. it says this John 1st John. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, confession does a few things. One, confession often makes sin more feel more real for us personally. Because often when we go about life with just sort of a hidden sin in the background, it doesn't feel real. We can kind of somehow do this interesting brain trick where it's like someone else is doing this thing, and it's not until we actually face God or face another person and we're like, oh, no, I, I am really doing this, that sin actually feels Real. Doesn't mean that isn't real, but the felt experience of it. Sometimes it we get the feel, the magnitude, the severity of the sin when we actually have to confess it to another. Second, confession begins the process of undermining sin strongholds in our life. See, the thing is, sin thrives in the dark. But when it's confessed to God and to friends, it becomes weaker. And change is possible. See, this is the thing. God is the primary change agent of change when it comes to the human heart. When we confess our sins, we are like inviting the gardener in to pull out the weeds. When you just try and do it on your own, you are actually removing the most powerful, potent change agent possible. Third, when we confess our sins to one another, we become vulnerable. And it not only gives an opportunity for us to have other people carry our burdens with us, but it also builds genuine and authentic community. So often we come into church and we feel like we're the only one who's like falling on our face all the time. And part of that is because we don't confess our sins to one another. So then we have this perception that we are the most messed up, broken, spiritually poor person in the room when in fact, if we actually just talked to one another honestly and confessed our sins with one another, we'd realize, wow, we're a mess. But at least God is with us. And at least we have our brothers and sisters to walk with us through it all. I think this is why James writes, make this your common practice Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you can live together whole and healed. I think as we enter this season, I think God has brought us to this story because He has wonderful things in store for us, but He doesn't want us to carry these hidden sins under the pillow of our minds and our hearts and in our houses, you know, as we move forward together on His mission in this community. Hebrews 12 writes, let us lay aside every weight in sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. I'm going to get super practical. This morning I want to do two things that are very practical, and then I'll have one thing for when we leave. First thing I want to do this morning, you know, before the worship team comes up, It's just create a moment of silence for us to allow the Holy Spirit to convict us. You know, in life, sometimes we're just so busy. We're so distracted. We're going from one thing to the next. We don't have just those spaces where God can just bring stuff to mind. Maybe you can think about this in a couple ways. One, it's not just what did you do this week, like I did something horrible, but also what did you fail to do? God invited you to bear his image in the world. Were you doing that? What did you do or fail to do? What would you do differently? How can God help you in the process? And right, so if you're going to confess to God during this moment of silence or later chat with someone, right, I think these are three very concrete steps. God, this is where I messed up. I really wished I had done this. God, can you help me with this? And then second, maybe with that, during this time of silence, as you're allowing the Spirit to convict you, I just want you to know that sometimes you can sort of like just do this in your head, and that's awesome, but sometimes as embodied creatures, God's like gave us bodies, you'll notice, what does Joshua do? He falls on his face when he repents. Sometimes it's helpful, actually, to allow our body to lead our heart by kneeling or laying down or doing something with your body that signals to God, all right, God, I'm humbling myself before you. And I know that's weird sometimes, but sometimes that's how we actually help our heart align with God is by actually moving our physical bodies. Time of silence. The second thing I'm going to do is I'm going to create a space for us to actually have a communal confession because it's not just about your relationship with Jesus or mine. It's all of us. We are all a church body. We are God's body in this place. So we're going to do a communal confession before we go into worship as a way for all of us together to say, Jesus, we want to align with your kingdom. And third, after we leave this place, I want to challenge all of you, and this is going to be maybe the harder part, I want you to tell someone your confession. And this is why. It's not about shaming us, it's not about, uh, you know, like making us do the weird, awkward thing, but sometimes we need other people to walk with us so that we actually live out that confession. Telling another person is also how we get other people to walk with us and say, I need help. Help me with this. Also, it's how we build authentic community so that we don't all leave this place having all confessed, having all repented, and then everyone leaves thinking, I guess I was the only one. We're going to start with silence. I just want you to adopt a posture that feels comfortable for you. Ultimately, this is about us humbling ourselves before the Holy Spirit and allowing us Him to convict us. Right? Before we are caught, before we are found out like Achan was, let's confess to God. Just invite you to adopt whatever posture is appropriate and then I'll bring us together for a communal confession in a moment. invite us to say this communal confession together. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and what we have left undone. Too often we have not loved you with our whole heart and soul and mind, and strength. And too often, we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, forgive what we have been. Help us amend what we are, and direct what we shall be, so that we may delight in your will, and walk in your ways, to the glory of your holy name. I invite the worship team up. Holy Spirit, we invite you into this place. Just pray for a cleansing of guilt or shame. Pray for just a washing. God, you are good. You want to forgive us, your broken servants. God, for those of us who have come before you and confessed our sin, we pray that we would experience life and rest and restoration in your name. God, you are good and you are big and we turn to you in worship because you are the God who is great and above all. Let's stand and worship him.